Father, turn our hearts and our, our minds to the path and words of your Holy Spirit. Help us, help us to hear him above all. And help our, our ears, our hearts, our minds to resonate with your word and your gospel. As we journey together in your presence, Lord, as we share this path for a, a few minutes this morning, Lord, may your spirit knit knit us closer together, unite us in the work and calling and commitment uh, to your truth, your life, and your way. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. So let's first take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is, again, the Apostle Paul writing to this church. And he says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we speak glory, did we seek glory from people, whether from you, uh, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Like nursing mother, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so affectionately desirous of you, we so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now look at what Paul lists as his qualifications to speak to them. He talks about the relationship that he has with the Thessalonian church and the foundation of that relationship. That that relationship was born, although he was already suffering, he was already in conflict, it was born um, out of his desire to have boldness, to speak boldly um, of God. In verse 2, he says, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. He said, we had boldness. He says, it was born not of my desires, not of my wants or needs, but of the boldness of Christ. And we talked about last week the, the impetus behind uh, the boldness we have for the gospel. He said that it wasn't from error. It wasn't from impurity or dishonesty. There was no attempt to deceive. He says, I wasn't trying to play you. I wasn't trying to manipulate you. Um, The only motivation I had was that we had been approved by God. In other words, he had been entrusted with the gospel. God had given us a message to deliver to you. And so we spoke. And he, he gives this contrast. He says, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says, when I came into this situation, I spoke to you in boldness, not because I was trying to manipulate you, but because of the power of the gospel. And I didn't care. It didn't matter whether it pleased everybody around me as long as it pleased God. Now, this was a huge, this is a huge statement speaking to a church 
um, where so much of what they, what they, in their culture, what they were doing was about pleasing other people. Now, if you know anything about the Roman world, uh, one of the things that existed in the, in the Roman world was an honor culture. Uh, the Roman world was full of ways that you could gain uh, dignitas, dignity, gravitas, uh, uh, weight or worthiness. And you, you could go through what was called the cursus honorum, which is a, a path by which a Roman citizen would check off the boxes of all the offices that they could fulfill in a city to become the chief man. And if you were in Rome, you went through that, hopefully to become consul and maybe, uh, maybe knock off the emperor and become emperor yourself. Um, this, this, Rome was an honor culture. It was a culture where, um, where technically, uh, the, the father of a household, the, the main man of a household, had the power of life and death over his family to prevent dishonor. Dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow, dishonor, um, a little Mulan, uh, the original Mulan, which was awesome, not the live action Mulan, was, um, but, it's an honor culture. Now, today we don't really live in an honor culture. We don't, we don't have a society like this. Now, some folks do. If you, if you ever have an opportunity to, to spend some time with some folks with an, in an old-school East Asian household, everything is about honor. Everything is about what you bring to the family name. And that was very much the Roman world. And Paul looks at this group of people who abandoned their identity as Romans to become followers of Christ, and there's still a transitional period as people are figuring this out, but he is, he's saying to them, when, when we spoke the gospel, when you were transformed, when we spoke, it wasn't to please man. We weren't trying to accumulate honor for ourselves. We weren't trying to sell people on the value of Christ, but rather we were desired to please God. He wanted to please God who tests our hearts. Now, Paul makes an allusion there. He tests our heart. He's, allusioning, he's making an allusion back to 1 Samuel uh, when David was chosen as king of Israel. Um, and David was the youngest of seven, um, and uh, at least seven. There were some sisters in there, so there, there was a lot of family members. Um, and, uh, and he was, when the prophet came to uh, the house of Jesse, who was David's father, um, looking for a king. God had sent him there to anoint the king. Uh, Samuel goes through all of David's older brothers, and they're all impressive. They're all tall. They're all big. They're all strong. They all deserve to, have, to be king. And yet God keeps going, no, not that one, not that one, not that one, until he runs out of sons. And, David, and, and the prophet Samuel, he says to Jesse, he says, you got any more sons? He actually asks him that question. Like, did you forget? Now, those of you that are from a big family, you know that this can happen. Um, my, my dad's best friend when I was growing up, they had, I don't even remember how many kids. They, they like, they went until Justin, who was my age, he was a little younger than me, and then they took a break and then they had more. Um, and, uh, but, uh, when they visited our house, they used to do a roll call. Like, like they would sound off. Pastor Joe would line the kids up. He'd say, Thompson's line up and he'd sound off and Katrina would, or J- Jason would say one and Katrina would say two and Nathan would say three and Katie would say four and Justin would say five. All right. And then Jesse and Taylor, so there were seven, um, or six. I don't know. I can't math. I can't, I can't math today. Um, but, uh, you know, is there another son? And then, and Jesse says, yeah, there's the youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep and let's not talk about him. And that winds up being David. 
and, and Samuel says, God looks on the heart. He doesn't look on the outside because, because David is the youngest. He's, he's been excluded by the whole family, but he's the one who's going to be the king. And, and Paul is making an allusion to this when he says that God tests our hearts. He knows the reality of who we are. He knows the substance of who we are. So it's not about pleasing man. It's not about pleasing others. It's about God seeing who we are supposed to be. He says, so because I wasn't interested in pleasing man, I didn't use flattering words. Um, I didn't use a, a pretext for greed. And that's not Paul's greed. That, that's the people's greed. He didn't appeal to, your, to your, your wants and your needs. He says, God is witness. You know this is true. I didn't seek glory from people, though I could have. He said, what, what was wrong? But then he contrasts. He says, instead, I was gentle, like a nursing mother. He said, I, I took care to, to guide you. Now, isn't it funny that he says, I, I didn't speak with words of flattery, which by definition means he just called it as it was. And yet he refers to that as the gentleness of a nursing mother. Now, any of you that have been mothers of small children know that gentleness sometimes requires correction, even to the smallest of children. Um, and so the, he's kind of making this illusion. I think it's interesting that Paul makes this illusion. Now, I, I could be very, very wrong about this, um, and I would not take a bullet for this statement. But the feeling I get is that when Paul visited churches, he observed the people and his letters often draw illustrations from experiences that he and the church had together. So I imagine that as Paul was teaching the Thessalonian church, maybe there were some young mothers dealing with their children there in that town. And as he was teaching, he was watching the care with which they, they cared for their children in the service. Because I don't know about, I don't know if you know this, but... But um, the, the typical way that an ancient church worked is that um, they were, because it came out of Judaism, they still separated men and women. They would, they would sit separately. And women tended to sit in the back. That was what Jewish synagogues would do. They would, the women would sit in the back. And everybody's like, was that because you know, like they were second citizens? It's like, no, so they could deal with the kids and whack them if they needed to in the middle of the service to keep them quiet. Um, so, so uh, you know, and there's actually ancient synagogues, and I've mentioned this before, but there are ancient synagogues with games carved into the floor in the back of the synagogue, and that's where mom would sit with the kids, and she would, she would sometimes have them play games and, and fool around. And, and although, you know, obviously crayon drawings on walls don't survive in the archaeological record, but I imagine that those synagogues had a lot of interesting drawings from those kids uh, on the floor. This is not permission for your children to draw on our floor. Uh, but anyway, so he makes this, this thing, and I think that he remembered those young mothers. And he remembered that they were there in the service, and they were taking care of their children. And remember, this letter is not written very long after he was gone, maybe a few months. And so he, he says to them, basically, you guys know that when I was there and I was ministering, it was like a, it was like I, was, I was like a mother taking care of their children, uh, uh, being... Uh, you know, he says, being affectionately desirous of you. We were sharing with you not only the gospel, but our own selves. And again, he talks about a nursing mother, sharing of yourself. I mean, think about how he's tying that connection, that a mother feeds her child from, from her own body, giving of herself. He says, and so you had become very dear to us. 
So when we look at this characteristic, right, um, we could basically basically draw from this a a list of things that Paul describes himself. First of all, he describes his ministry there as being approved by God. He talks about it pleasing God. He talks about it uh, not seeking glory and being gentle and giving of himself. Now, if you want to make that list, you can go ahead and do the best you can to remember that. Um, but he, approved, he was approved by God. He pleased God. He wasn't seeking glory. And he was gentle, giving of himself, like a nursing mother. Now, he mentioned in the previous verse a statement that I'm going to come back to, and so I want to mention it. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So here's the message of Paul talking about how he ministered, and as the gospel became alive in them, they turned from idols to the living God. Now I want to contrast this with what Paul warns about in terms of false teachers. 1 Thessalonians looks back to the beginning of their journey with Paul and Christ. 2 Thessalonians looks forward to the end of their journey. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is just probably one page over for you, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So in other words, he says, and this, by the way, this, this gathered together, it is the Greek word uh, synagogis, all right? Uh, Episynagogus, being gathered together as a synagogue, as an assembly. This is one of the reasons... Uh, this vocabulary, Paul is still very much using very Jewish vocabulary. And it's one of the reasons we know this, this letter to be so early. He says, being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let me, let me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the sermon right here. I want to step out and give you a little bit of historical thing. You see where he, he describes this? He says, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter. Um, Paul is describing what were the authorities of the early church. The spirit of God, the spoken word, which was the gospels, what became our written gospels, and the letters, all right, epistoli. Epistoli, the letters. He's describing the canon of the New Testament. Now, most Bible scholars will not say that. They won't. They'll say that the early church just eventually developed an idea of what authority was. That eventually, down the road, they said, "Well, how many gospels should we have? Let's have four. That's a nice even number." Um, you know, and, and what else should we rely on? Let's, let's just take the letters of Paul. Paul is saying, look, there's already an understanding that there's a gospel, there's a spoken word, and it hadn't been written down yet. Um, a, 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 there's a, a guy named Papias who describes how Matthew's gospel, which was uh, the first one, Matthew's gospel is a collection of the sayings of Jesus that were translated into Greek. Uh, he uses the word logos, um, which is the Greek word for word. It's the same word here, spoken word. It is, it is the idea that there was a consensus. Matthew would come to town and he would preach, and that is the gospel of Matthew. Mark would come to town, or Peter first. Um, Mark would come to town and preach, and that's the gospel of Mark. Luke would come to town and preach, and he, that was the gospel of Luke. It seems to also have been the way that Paul preached the gospel. Um, so the spoken word, the gospel, and then the letters. Right? So the spirit, 
the spoken word and the letters. Think about think about how he's viewing that. He's basically there's the spirit of God speaking. That doesn't necessarily require an instrument, but then there are these spoken words. There's the gospel that's gained the consensus, the story of Jesus, and then there's the epistles which give instruction. And that's that's how the New Testament works for us. We have the gospels who tell us about Jesus. We have the letters that tell us how to live about Christ, and we accept that they are given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's the New Testament. Okay. So now you got a little bit of a doctrinal thing. Now we get back into Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you, in verse 3, in any way. Now remember, in chapter 1, he said, I did not, or First Thessalonians, he said, I did not deceive you. Now he says, let no one deceive you. So 1 Thessalonians looks back, 2 Thessalonians looks forward. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come, will not come, the coming of the Lord Jesus. So he's talking about verse 1. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, what Paul is describing is what the apostle John will label later describe as the spirit of Antichrist. Now, Paul seems to be describing a specific person, which is one of the reasons why you will often read about the Antichrist with a capital A. But it is also a spirit that enters into the church. It is a a pseudo-authority that will enter into the church and try to corrupt the church. It is the spirit of a false teacher. And we were talking to the elders meeting, Ray Ray and Doc and I were talking about how um, as we get closer to the end... Things will get worse. The same things will get worse and worse. They will get amplified. So you might have false teachers in the early church and you think they're bad, but false teachers as we get to the end of this are going to be really bad. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Paul, uh, Jesus describes it as the beginning, of, or the, the, the beginning of sorrows, the idea of labor pains. And any of you that have been through labor know things get, they build and get worse and get worse and get worse. So this spirit, although he seems to be describing a particular person, and I'll go ahead and cover this, I do not believe that person was elected president, so throw that out, all right? Anyway, um, but this spirit of Antichrist, it's going to get worse and worse, but it's already present and at work in the church. Paul warns them about this, that this is a deceit. What characterizes this, and how is it different from Paul? He calls it, he calls this, he says, um, that day will come, it's going to be rebellion. He says, the man of lawlessness is, re- is revealed. Literally a man with no rules, with no boundaries, with no restrictions, does whatever he feels like doing. No accountability. He says, There's going to, there are going to be teachers who are going to come in and they're going to be lawless. And they're going to be the son of destruction. And that, that phrase in and of itself, we could unpack this for forever. But, but think about the son of destruction. Think about, first of all, think about the man of lawlessness, right? Out, no rules, no expectation, no accountability. As opposed to Paul saying, remember, we were approved of God. He says there was a confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Then he says it's his son of destruction. Well, think about how that contrasts with Paul saying that he 
pleased God. I mean, and so, so here's this, there's gentleness Paul is describing. And if Paul is describing himself as gentle, if you ever read Paul, you know Paul is not the sweetest, gentlest guy in the universe. Um, he can have some rough edges about him. Um, and what point in the book of 1 Corinthians he actually says, don't make me stop this church and turn around. Um, like, like, I mean, he is, he says, I mean, he, he is uh, not exactly the sweetest, gentlest guy, but he's saying, I came with a spirit of gentleness, this guy comes with a spirit of destruction. I came pleasing God. This God wants to destroy everything. And then in verse, verse 4 he says, so that he, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, if you know about the Roman world, uh, you know that there was a tendency... It was early at this point. It became much more overt later. But there was a thing that they did where they would deify the dead Caesar. They would make him a god. Um, and so when Julius Caesar died, Caesar Augustus talked about how when, when he died, he saw a star run across the sky. And that was his, his blessed, beloved father going to join the, the gods. And, and so they, watched, they worshipped Devious Julius. All right, the, 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 the divine Julius. And then when Caesar Augustus died, his successor saw a miraculous moment that testified that he, was, he had become a god. Now, Caesar Augustus made sure that this was done. Augustus was the consummate, um, the consummate politician and the consummate self-promoter. He would say things to people like, no, no, I'm not a god, I'm, I'm just the son of a god. You know, he was infamous for saying stuff like that and writing scripts for people so that they made sure they said the right things about him. Well, then this just continues to go. It goes and goes and goes until uh, it's either Vespasian or Septimus Severus. I can't remember which one of them. As he was dying, he said, I, I feel like I'm becoming a god. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, this was, this was what they did. And so when we read this, this is... At surface, first of all, this is a criticism of the Roman Empire. He's making a statement about be careful of, um, oh boy, be careful of government power that says it's from God. It can be dangerous. He's kind of throwing that out there. But he's also saying be careful of those who are willing to take their space, take over the temple, and declare themselves to be God. Now again, he's talking about this Antichrist being, that this, this man down the end, but there's also this, this groove of taking uh, God out of the, taking Jesus out of the center of the church and replacing it with a leader, with a pastor, with a, a prophet, with a, a really powerful motivational speaker. There's a tendency toward lawlessness, and destruction, and self-exaltation. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you turned away from idols. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, beware of the teacher who sets himself up as an idol. See, these are connected. These letters are tied. They're connected. Paul knows what he's doing, the way that he's writing this. So in 1 Thessalonians, if I can kind of summarize these, 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the boldness of a teacher who has the authority of the word of God. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about the deception of a teacher who would take authority to himself. 
And he warns the church about this. Now, you might think that that's the big idea, but it's not. If I have a big idea, it is this. In verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. If I have a big idea, it is this. This is how much Satan fears the church. Satan fears the church and fears a church aligned with Christ as their head and the word of God as their authority so much that all through history he has done everything he could possibly imagine to undermine the authority of the Spirit and the Gospel and the Apostles in the church to keep us from being what he knows God has equipped us to be. Satan is not afraid of you as an individual. I just want to make that clear. But he is afraid of a people devoted to Christ. Satan knows he can't hold on to a world where the gospel is being preached. Satan knows that he can't manipulate people, he can't deceive people who are committed to the authority of the truth of the word of God. Now, he's going to do his absolute best because essentially, if we boil it down, Satan is a spoiled child who knows what he can't have, and so he tries to destroy it. Satan is terrified of simple people who are yielded to the gospel, speaking it without compromise. That is enough for him to try to set up false gods to mislead us. Never, ever, ever accept the lie that Satan is in charge of anything. You say, well, he's the prince of the powers of the air. He's the the god of this world. He likes to believe he is. But what happened when he pulled out all the stops to take down Jesus? When he entered into the heart of one of Jesus' own disciples? When Jesus was ready, done. Jesus, he couldn't keep Jesus dead because Jesus is the one who gives life. He can't keep the church down as long as the church is committed to Christ. He can try to deceive us. He can try to destroy us. He can try to beat us. He can try to shame us. He can try to make us illegal. He can try to corrupt people that would be in power. He can try to limit our scope. He can try to keep our mouths shut. But the only reason he's doing it is he is scared. Because Jesus... Uh, Satan can read the Bible too. Just so you know, he knows he's going to lose. He knows he's going to lose. 
He's just too arrogant to admit it. What Satan fears most, what Satan fears most is not a worldwide radio broadcast of some megachurch. What Satan fears most is not a global publishing network. What Satan fears most is a church committed to Christ and the scriptures. And if you want to get victory over Satan, it's not about following steps. It's not about doing all the right things. It's not about wearing the right Christian published t-shirts. It's not about giving to the right causes. It's about devoting your life to Christ and devoting your heart and mind to his word. And that's all I've got to say about that. Let's pray. Father, your word is a two-edged sword. It cuts to our heart, our soul, our being. And your son is the head of the church, the sustainer of all creation, the resurrected one, the firstborn of many, declared to be your son, king of all kings. And the imposter, the deceiver, wants to tear down your church. Help us to rest upon you. To go deeper than we ever have in your word. To rely ever more on your spirit. To test the spirits. To speak without compromise. To know the gospel and live it out and speak it. Lord, no matter what opposition comes... Help us to stand with you. Lord, help us not to be afraid of the one who has no true power over us. But in worship, to worship in reverence and awe, you are God and our Father. Help us to be gentle in our resolve, strong in our commitment, wise in our words. May we be your people. Go in peace, my brothers and sisters.